0: Welcome to Free Speech Nation, the podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. My guest today is Matthew Goodwin. Matthew is Professor of Politics at Kent University. He's also a senior fellow at the Legatum Institute. He's the author of many books, including recently, National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. We had a fantastic conversation. We covered a lot of ground. We talked about the way in which the culture war is being imported from America. We talked about academic freedom and much, much more. Besides, I hope you enjoy our conversation. So thank you very much for joining me today, Matthew. I wanted to start by asking you about populism. You've written a book, National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. I think a lot of people consider the notion of populism to be a dirty word, or certainly that's the way it's used. It's often used with derision or scorn in the, in the media. Can you explain why that might be and what, what, what you feel it means?
1: Yeah, I think I think to understand um, populism, we, we sort of have to step back and just think about where the debate over populism really came from. And I think, um, a lot of the discussion uh, of populism has filtered through uh, the university debate uh, and academic debate about populism. And historically, to be frank, um, that debate has been has been dominated by people who tend to be very much on on the left of the political spectrum, and who have often um, equated populism uh, with with terms like far right, uh, fascism, neo-fascism, anti-immigration, uh, and actually that that research has been a highly politicized um, a body of research. Uh, and uh, that's where I came from historically as a, as a young, young PhD student, and was, was struck really at, uh, at the failure um, of, of academics to, to really think about some of the other reasons why people might be uh, supporting these parties. And I think if you sort of look at, at, at why we, we're in this sort of populist moment today, I think that really takes us into looking at, at some of the grievances that are driving these movements that actually aren't about, you know, fascism and extremism. Um, there are certainly, um, there is certainly a minority of, of people who vote for populist parties who hold very unsavory views and are quite authoritarian, but actually these movements tend to be drawing their support from, from what I would argue are, are quite acceptable, uh, quite legitimate grievances around the failure of political systems to give voice to, Working-class non-graduate voices, the failure of political elites to uh, recognise viewpoint diversity within societies, to accept that concerns over the pace and scale of migration are entirely uh, legitimate, um, and also uh, to deal to, to, to address the fact that lots of people feel that um, they're not just uh, suffering from objective economic inequality, but but actually are suffering from relative. Uh, uh, inequality that compared to other groups their group is being is being left behind and so one of the reasons Roger Ewell and I wrote the book National Populism was to basically try and try and present a more nuanced case uh, about what this movement is and 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 where it has come from and to try and get away from this very simplistic binary conversation that we have, which is populism equals fascism. And, um, and that, you know, for a start is only really um, encouraging more people uh, to vote for populist parties. And it's also really not a good reflection of of the empirical evidence that we now have on why people are actually uh, voting for these parties.
0: Well I mean it's also historically illiterate you know this is not what fascism means and it, it's interesting it, what you've said raises a really interesting question I think which is that you you've there clearly outlined uh, a range of uh, potential grievances that people might have that are completely legitimate that don't equate to far right beliefs so why is it uh, that so many members of the commentariat uh, and the and 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 the and universities interpret this as uh, or, or how can I put it interpret it in the least generous way possible <laughs>
1: Well, I think um, there are a number of reasons. I think firstly, uh, many of the institutions, many of the, the sort of forums in which we talk about politics are very uh, homogenous ideologically. They lean very strongly in one direction. So it's it's a political game to, to say people who vote for Brexit for example, as being you know, xenophobic and, and racist Um, I think also it's wrapped up intimately with status and the role that status now plays in Western societies. I think for many uh, white liberal graduates, um, social status today has become intimately wrapped up with the embrace of of what you might call progressive, even woke uh, views and and people who vote for things like Brexit or even who vote for the Conservative Party are Mm. increasingly on the wrong side of that that belief system. And so are portrayed as being sort of racist little Englanders who want to restore the empire and return to the 1950s there's almost no evidence to to support that assertion um, and I think also it's it's just a lot lot of people not really reading the research and reading histories, as you you suggest. I mean, most of the populist movements in Western democracies today are not revolutionary. Fascists were revolutionary. They wanted to overthrow not just liberalism, but they wanted to completely overthrow capitalism and democracy. They did not hide that fact. Um, And they were also, um, I think, deeply fixated on uh anti-semitism um and they were not comfortable with the market economy and i think if you look at what we've seen um, across much of europe at the moment and also i would argue across much of north america is something quite different i think populists are more reactionary than revolutionary they want to change the system modify the system but they don't want to completely over overthrow it they're fairly comfortable actually with capitalism uh, as as an economic uh, system and they broadly accepted democracy now they d- they do advocate a different conception of democracy they advocate direct democracy they want more attention paid to the popular will to the majority and they want less attention being paid to uh sort of the procedures uh of, of of government a sort of liberal conception of democracy but but those differences i would argue are really important because they actually force us to accept that lots of the people that have been voting for these political upheavals have very good reasons for doing so. I mean, you know, the blunt reality, as we can all see, is over the last half century, Western liberal democracy and uh, the capitalist system have not worked very well for large groups of people. And the people who have been running those societies have often been running them in a way that has not been very um, responsive to to people's concerns, especially people who do not share their liberal progressive um, uh, views on issues like multiculturalism, diversity, and cosmopolitanism and uh, i think that you know has left ample space for these movements to really uh, uh become permanent features of the political landscape
0: yeah i mean just to, to bring it back to the universities insofar as i'm I, I understand what you're saying but to me i'm i'm always still confused as to why it is i mean you gave the example of um the attitudes the reasons why people voted for brexit and so often we heard in the media that that people wanted to, to restore the days of empire. And that's just not a thing. I, there is no one who has that view. And yet somehow, and, and we can see that, you know, we can see there's no evidence for it. And academics of all people uh, should be interested in the pursuit of truth. And they see this and they, they they they. Uh, I can't work out whether it's willful or whether they are kind of sharing this, this sort of mass delusion, or if it's what you hinted at there, which is this idea of, of preference falsification insofar as there is a high status opinion. There is an opinion to have that will make you uh, higher than others or more popular or or more respected. And it's not necessarily the opinion you hold, but you will, you will seize that opinion anyway. And, 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 and and wear it and signal it. I mean, is, is, is that what's going on here or am I engaging in a bit of COD psychology here, which I shouldn't do?
1: (laughs) I think it's part of the explanation. I think uh, Rob Henderson, among others has has written about this very eloquently that we now have Uh, in effect an intellectual class that has turned progressive ideology um some might call it woke ideology into a luxury belief uh system so they are accruing status by offering interpretations of the world in this way that not only um send a signal to their fellow elites that uh That they see the world this way and they're trying to acquire further status by projecting that view. But they're also, and this is the most important part, they're trying to firmly disassociate themselves from who they perceive to be low status groups in society. And those groups include non graduates, the working class, people who vote for Brexit, and so forth. And and that, I think, has really, really accelerated, in particular in the UK, since the vote for Brexit. It's accelerated in the US since the trump presidency and the evidence on this is overwhelming i mean zach goldberg uh, among others has shown actually how after 2016 white graduate liberals have basically drifted away from everybody else in society have doubled down on their pro-multiculturalism pro-diversity views and i think have done that partly as a way of really reaffirming their sense of social status uh, disassociating themselves from others and um when you look at some of the arguments that have been offered by the academy in the UK for brexit particularly arguments that focus on things like empire i think partly also this is actually how they see the world they 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 have always historically had a problem with england mainly because lots of the academics who have made those arguments have come from scotland wales and and ireland or or, or northern ireland and have i think really push this trope that actually at the root of this is is English nationalism is a sort of backwards xenophobic ignorant ideology uh that is that is basically consumed with throwing the immigrants out um you know returning to 1950 to when divorce was illegal and abortion wasn't uh, allowed and same-sex uh, relationships were, were were not permissible and all of these things um there is almost no empirical evidence to support that uh, I, I, I would argue, but what it does is it really sort of offers us an insight into actually how parts of the academy view um, many of their fellow citizens. It also reminds us, I would argue, of just how culturally detached uh, many intellectuals actually have become. This isn't a new thing, of course, George Orwell talked about it in 1940, um, but what we've seen since then, I think, is is quite a rapid transformation of the universities, whereby in the 1960s, people on the left outnumbered people on the right by around three to one, today that spiraled to about nine to one ten to one depending on what what survey you look at so as the academies sort of become more detached in particular from the groups who have actually been voting for things like brexit or voting for boris johnson you know that gap has become so wide that they're no longer really able to sort of relate to the the real grievances and the motivations that are driving uh, large numbers of voters and that finds its expression through some of these to be blunt ridiculous arguments that we've had about brexit
0: yeah I mean it's very interesting you mentioned this idea of wanting to disassociate yourself from certain individuals that is a, a trope that I see again and again insofar as you know if I support free speech uh, someone will point at a very reactionary kind of a far-right figure who also supports free speech and say do you really want to be on the same side as that person but of course I would say that person is wrong about almost everything but when it comes to free speech that person's right and it's you know and of course that person likely is supporting free speech for disingenuous reasons anyway so i mean yeah but but this guilt by association thing is is very prevalent it's just a shame that they should have seeped into the academy and i think you you will know this more than anyone as someone who was one of the few open academics in support of brexit i mean it was overwhelming wasn't it and i mean i feel a kinship here because i was one of the handful of comedians who was pro brexit i mean i think you you could have counted us on one hand to be honest, and and probably the same with academics, am I right?
1: Uh, I think that's true. I I was a sort of rare rare creature in academia. I I didn't campaign publicly for Brexit. I wouldn't really have described myself as a as a Brexiteer before the referendum. But but in the aftermath, my 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 view was people have voted for it. Let's accept it. Let's implement it. Let's work with it. And then as we went through 2017, 18 and 19, I became actually quite appalled at the reaction of many of my colleagues,
0: but also wider society. You're standing up for democracy there. You're saying you believe in the democratic process. How is that the controversial position?
1: But you see that that journey for somebody in my shoes, you know, about 10% of academics would sort of would be would be in that camp um i think has been very uh, revealing in itself because i now divide my career into pre-brexit and post-brexit pre-brexit was was fine everybody was very friendly and nice post-brexit you, you are essentially seen as a pariah uh as somebody who is sort of tantamount to um you know sort of almost evil you know in the sort of moralistic way in which um liberals tend to view the world around them jonathan Haidt, in in the righteous mind and my other other studies has has pointed to this that that, that liberals tend to view the world through a deeply moralistic uh lens uh conservatives and i would say i'm a sort of fairly moderate conservative I, I actually lean a bit left on the economy um i, I voted for labor at, at some elections in the past um but, uh, but nonetheless, conservatives tend to see things more through the lens of pragmatism through sort of what works, you know, and, and and some of my colleagues are very moralistic in how they see the world around them. So if you've violated this sacred value, which is European integration, which is cosmopolitanism, um, you are, you are essentially then, you know, damaged goods. Now, if you're a professor, that's okay, because you can Carry on, and you can't really get sacked and so forth. But if you're a, a lecturer or a, a temporary uh, lecturer or somebody on a fixed-term contract or somebody who aspires to climb the ladder to, to become a professor one day, um, you know, if you violate those sacred values, it's essentially game over. Um, it's in, it's it's not impossible to rise to the top, but it's very very difficult because you are seen as violating that that monoculture. And and I I, I do firmly believe actually that it is now in some institutions, especially. At, An ideological monoculture Uh, and that is deeply problematic because as Cass Sunstein and others have shown when you have these monocultures where you don't have any viewpoint diversity what tends to happen is people radicalize over time because there's nobody really to check their their ideological prize. There's nobody to challenge them, and I think after Brexit, we saw that in our universities, where you know the vast majority of pro-remain academics became so sort of committed in their view, so outraged that they sort of felt like it was completely acceptable to sort of pile on their colleagues who had said, actually, you know, we think we should respect and implement this vote, and it was it was quite appalling. And I I would say that um, that just just by way of, of background, I have never had as many emails. Um, uh from people saying look i wish i could say publicly that i supported this or i wish mm-hmm. i could say publicly that i i voted for this including ironically a lot of people in oxbridge um but but they feel they can't do so because of yeah. the career consequences uh, and, and we're not talking about something that is extremist we're talking about leaving the european union which, which is actually a mainstream view but uh, but that's the insight into into the world that we're in
0: it's a very depressing picture that you paint there um before i uh, carry on because i want to talk a bit more about the universities and this and this monoculture that you describe but i have heard you often re- refer to liberals and liberalism and um you know i've always considered myself to be a liberal because i believe in liberal values i believe in freedom of speech i believe in uh, freedom of the press uh, you know evidence-based epistemology the idea of you know these are basic fundamental liberal truths does that not make me a liberal
1: Yes, I think it does. I think you know, liberal encompasses a lot of uh, a lot of people. When I refer to uh, when I refer to moralistic uh, liberal-minded uh, people, I should probably be more specific in my language. I'm mainly referring to liberal progressives which i think yeah. there is a sort of subgroup within and in some respects they're not actually that liberal
0: but um that's what i mean i suppose that's what i
1: progressives are who we would sort of call today sort of woke uh woke activists and you know there's a lot of emerging evidence now on on that particular group that they come from very privileged backgrounds they tend to have above average income their parents tend to be graduates they tend to live in the cities and university towns they are very active on social media far more so than the national average they are consumed by the idea that britain and and other western societies are racist societies and they are obsessed with historic injustices sometimes for good reason i mean they Mm. they, you know the one thing that makes me rather anxious about the debate of around sort of wokeism if you like is i think in some of it there is a there there is an assumption that, that these are bad people i don't actually think that i think many of the Progressive um, many of my pro- progressive colleagues have good intentions. Um, but I think they've sort of latched onto an ideology that is hardwired to actually yeah. more division. Uh, than it is to bring people together. And so this obsession with historic injustices and what happened, you know, 200, 300 years ago is is partly a reflection of that, as is their their much wider definition of racism. So they hold a really expanded definition of racism, sort of concept creep, if you like, that includes entirely legitimate things such as, you know, voting for Brexit or voting for the Conservatives, you know, in the eyes of the progressive, uh, mindset that is tantamount to blasphemy. You know, yeah. John, John McWhorter in the U.S. and others have talked about this group as being almost religious. You know, in how they see the world, in holding views that are 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 quite religious in tone and being very very hostile to this this idea of viewpoint diversity. That I do believe is is fundamentally central to to any university experience, which is having people in universities teaching students. Uh, who hold very different views, and if we lose that, then we're in deep trouble.
0: It does strike me as uh, having religious overtones. I mean, what you everything that you've described is this notion of of heresy, really. And sometimes they inadvertently borrow the language of, of religiosity. It, it, even, I mean, I, I I don't suppose you saw the viral video the other day of the protesters outside of Netflix. Uh, someone was holding up a sign saying that he found Dave Chappelle funny and a woman was screaming in his face, repent, repent. I mean, actually using the words of religiosity, that strikes me as is incredible. And uh, so I think in that extent, it is fair is not to say that this is a kind of a religion or or certainly a fundamentalist religion that appears to have captured uh, some of the most intelligent people in our society. And that maybe is the danger.
1: I think there's a lot of truth to the description of of the progressive movement the more radical end of that progressive movement as as being very religious in in tone, you know think about all of the things that we can we can see firstly, you know that the way that texts are used so key books uh, around race and anti-racism that are treated as as religious texts that need to be uh, distributed around schools and universities, even though uh, many of the claims in those books are really lacking in empirical evidence. Now I was trained Uh, during my PhD, to to say any claims need to be supported by empirical evidence. We need to really test them. They need to be falsifiable. We need to really, you know, subject them to to social science scrutiny. That now seems to have gone out of the window. So we've embraced all of these very dubious concepts, you know, unconscious bias um, testing, uh, white privilege, institutional racism. Mm. Uh, All of these things are now taken as gospel, uh, when in fact we, we really don't have a lot of evidence to... To support and that makes me particularly nervous and also the way in which alternative views alternative uh, values are, are not allowed into the marketplace of ideas anymore are, are stigmatized as being um unacceptable illegitimate uh, and so forth and that too is very pronounced in the very institutions that are supposed to be educating and training Uh, and developing the the rounded critical thinkers of tomorrow, namely our universities. So so this religious aspect I think is deeply worrying. I do think, and we might come on to talk about this, I do think the tide may be turning in some important ways against that mindset. I think even, you know, I would use the word moderates in the progressive camp who are not part of that sort of 13 to 15 percent, which is roughly what that that sort of woke progressive group represent in Britain, there's a, there's a wider group, a sort of moderate group that kind of sympathize with them on some issues, but also uh, uh, accept that they're slightly crazy on some issues. And I think actually taking the, that moderate group along with a, in this conversation about where, where the radicals are going wrong, I think is absolutely crucial because if you lose that moderate group, then, then you know, it's, it's gonna be very
0: difficult. Can I ask how you've quantified that 13 to 15%, because I've always been fully aware that this is a a minority, an elite uh, who are pulling the strings here. And the reason that they have so much sway is firstly that they have, uh, uh, you know, captured so many of our major institutions, but also because they're damned intimidating and, 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 you know, they, they, they are the ones who would burn you at the stake if they could. Right. So that's, that's why they, they, they win. Ultimately, you only need two or three woke people in any organization for the whole thing to fall. Right. So, so, but how did you find that figure? Where does that come from?
1: Yeah, so we have two recent studies uh, that actually come up with two different figures. So we have a a study by More and Common who use a very large-scale survey segmentation analysis. They estimate that in Britain, the progressive activist base, the sort of woke base, is about 13%. Mm. Uh, A separate study at King's puts it a bit higher, about 20%. Now, instinctively, that feels closer to to where we are than the 13% to me for for other reasons that I've seen in surveys. Um, But uh, I think you're still looking at a clear minority. But the problem challenge, uh, in my mind at least, is that, is that even though we're talking about a minority, they are disproportionately represented in key institutions. So, you know, parts of the media, parts of universities, in particular, public sector organisations, local government, and so on. And they then tend to be so vocal, and the evidence backs this up, they're very vocal on social media, right? They're very um, often very influential uh, within their organisations, they tend to be quite senior. Um, I think as a consequence, they, they, the sort of influence is, is amplified. And when radicals speak, you know, moderates tend to be very uh, anxious about, about shutting them down. Now, interestingly, I think we have had a number of test cases, and I know we'll come on to talk about Kathleen Stock. I think Kathleen is one test case, but there have been a number of other cases in UK universities over the last couple of years, I think also in parts of the media that have made even... Uh, sort of you know left leaning moderates think actually, I think these progressives are a bit crazy. Yeah. Uh, I think the treatment of of Noah Carl, a young researcher who was suddenly sacked from the University of Cambridge from one of the most prestigious institutions was a was a really interesting case whereby. A lot of mainstream, you know, non-woke, if you like, academics felt that was really, really not on. The disinvitation of Jordan Peterson from the University of Cambridge, the disinvitation of Amber Rudd, and now the treatment of Kathleen Stock at the University of Sussex. You know, all of this is is sort of sending a signal to the 80% that actually, you know, there is a group now that is incredibly intolerant of alternative perspectives. And I think also, to be blunt, a lot of people have realised that this is causing serious reputational damage, uh, and it is actually harming their institutions and harming the reputation of their their profession. And and when you're dealing with people who are largely obsessed with status, um, that in itself may actually have, have quite a strong impact.
0: I mean, I am heartened when I see things like that. For instance, the University of Sussex being so vocal in its defence of of Kathleen Stock and the right for academic freedom, and then with Jordan Peterson, similarly, you know, the um Gonville and Keys I think are now are inviting him again after all this time. And, and so that, to me, seems that, that you know there are, are sort of signs that things are moving in that direction. But then, for every time there is this these little victories, there's all this other tsunami of nonsense that comes back the other way, and 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 it doesn't feel looking at it in an overall picture doesn't necessarily feel that things are being rectified and one of the questions I always get from people is when is all this going to end most people just want it to go away because most people as you said the 80% just think this is this is nonsense this this has got to stop
1: if you're serious about tackling political polarization you know on the the sort of mad far right end of the spectrum but also the, the radical progressive end and I do actually think they both present serious challenges. Um, you've got to get the the moderates in the room to feel empowered to to stand up and actually uh, take take uh, to, you know push back against 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 these groups. Now, how do you do that? I think one starting point is simply to expose how crazy uh, the world is is becoming. And I think in the US, where you know they are, uh, I think a few years. Um, Uh, ahead of us in this debate, I think the UK is quickly following America, but uh, they are a few years ahead of us. I think um, uh, you can begin to see the way in which the debate over how we teach race uh, and and how we discuss racism in schools and universities is an example now of the mainstreaming of this debate. I think when you look at what's happening around the teaching of of critical race theory in universities, when you you look at the, the impact that defund the police and similar initiatives have had on actual uh, rates of crime, and, and now an, a recognition that actually this is, has had a very negative impact, including on the lives of African Americans. I think now, you know, those debates are beginning to sort of open up uh, uh, a room to have a serious discussion about about what this particular worldview is about, and, and where it's going to take us in the same way that I think in the UK, you know, we had a very early glimpse of that when when the government released the race disparity report and and the way in which, you know, merely by pointing to a more uh, nuanced, complex story uh, around uh, the relative performance, the relative life chances of different minority groups, that was seen by the sort of, you know, progressive radical end as, as blasphemy. You're not allowed to point to the fact that actually white working class kids are the bottom of the the table when it comes to educational outcomes, and Chinese and Indian kids are doing really, really well, you're not allowed to point to the the remarkable progress that has been made in social mobility among uh, uh, a a large number of minority ethnic groups over the last half century. I think that was a real trailer to where the UK is going over the next five to ten years, which is are we willing to paint a nuanced story of what's happening, an evidence-led story of what's happening, or are we going to, you know, sort of continue to perpetuate this deeply ideal logical very simplistic uh, and actually quite um quite permi- a pernicious view of the world uh and uh, i think you know sadly we will probably end up um following america's path on that
0: you mentioned the race disparity report there i think it's very interesting because the response to it was very much this kind of uh, just flat out denial uh, w- w- without any substance. And then you, you read, you know, the Runnymede repo- uh, the Runny-Mede Trust coming back at it. And it is just assertion piled on assertion. And it's all sort of rooted in faith. And it's as though they take their their, their assumptions first and work backwards from that conclusion. Uh, and that to me is why it's going to be so difficult, I think, to push beyond this, is because so many of the uh, advocates of, say, critical race theory, all these ideas of these invisible power structures that dominate society are impervious to data. They just They're just not interested in that
1: yeah and even if you are the author of a study uh, that happens to show that the reality of of life in britain is more complex than uh, than some of those interpretations would have us believe mm. uh, typically the reaction is to then undermine and discredit that particular researcher as being a, a voice that cannot be trusted or or somebody who's violated the sacred values of Equality through diversity, and 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 that's a real problem. I mean, I've got lots of colleagues. I used to have a, a lot of respect for them. They talked a lot about social science and the need to, you know, uh, get at causality and draw on reliable uh, evidence and so on. Um, but but then we'll sort of step back from from challenging, you know, some of these. Uh, ideological um, principles, and and I think that's that's just a betrayal of what we're about. We're not here to push an ideological view. We're here to search for truth and to use evidence to get at that. And as a consequence, then we just sort of and we sort of enter this make-believe world that sort of isn't really a, a true reflection of reality. And of course, partly that's what its architects intended us to uh, intended us to 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 be in uh, when when they started pushing some of these arguments uh, half a century ago. Um, but it's 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 deeply worrying. I mean, you know, if you look at Britain as an example, you could tell a very different story about Britain over the last half century, over the last century, you could tell a story that is about a remarkable uh, a story of progress uh, among different uh, minority groups, uh, a story of collapsing uh, levels of racial prejudice since the 1980s, uh, a story uh, since Brexit of a country that has become overwhelmingly more positive about migration and has become much more tolerant on almost every serious, rigorous, reliable measure that we have. Now, if we were, you know, staying true to our word and we believed in empirical evidence, we would be pointing to a lot of that. But there is a nervousness in pointing to the good news, right, because now we are hardwired to obsess about the sort of bad news and to paint this picture of Britain as being somehow comparable to the United States. Uh, and secondly is being a country that is overwhelmingly negative, that is obsessed with painting, um, you know, the, the worst possible story of the country. And it's it's just a very unfortunate place to be because that also then strips a lot of groups of their sense of agency it encourages this culture of victimhood that we've slid into uh, whereby you know you acquire status now by by becoming a victim rather than, than an, an individual with your own sense of agency you can change the world around you um and we're stripping away individual personal responsibility so it's just easier to say you're part of a homogenous group that's being victimized by invisible power structures and that is not i don't think a particularly good place for us to be as a society and it's a it's a very depressing Place to be because it sort of strips away a lot of effort and a lot of work that people have invested over over many decades. Um, but that that is ultimately the view that, that that radical progressives want want to push. And and many of the people that fall into those ideas, um, as you know, I think are, are good intentioned, you know, nice people. Um, but but I, I I I'm not entirely convinced that they fully understand the roots of the the ideology that they are that they are pushing by extension. Uh, and that is uh, the, one of the big problems.
0: Well, it comes back to the, this idea that there there is a kernel of truth in the, in the things that they say. In other words, you know, racism has not been eradicated in our society, it does still exist. People are still subjected to discrimination. And therefore, if you are seen uh, to be painting a positive picture of the triumph of social liberalism since the civil rights movement, um, then people might be suspicious of that. They might be saying, are you trying to uh, d- deny uh, the, the oppression that certain people still face. And I suppose that's the problem, isn't it?
1: It's not one or the other. I think we're able to say, yes, there is still racism and here is an example of it. Um, but there's also context and there is also a positive story to tell about the country today, which is this. And I think we've lost that balance. We've lost that that sense of Nuance. Instead, we we we're sort of running at two hundred miles an hour at, at the negative story, which is often actually, in some cases, is not truly representative of the country. I mean, I was thinking about this during the um, during the football tournament uh, in the summer, and suddenly the the main narrative became, "Look how racist Britain is!" Mm. Uh, in the space of about forty eight hours, yes, and uh, and actually. The the opportunity there to tell a very different story of the country was just completely lost. And that alternative story is Brits have become much more inclusive in how they think about their national identity. They no longer really think about it in terms of race and ethnicity. Um, Levels of racism, by every uh, rigorous measure that we have, have collapsed since the 1980s. You know, Marcus Rashford and that generation have, have grown up in a much more tolerant, country than their parents and their grandparents. Now, of course, they would fire back, we well, look at all of the abuse that I receive on social media. And of course, the problem is, the sort of the smaller number of out and out racists that we have in our society, their voice has been amplified on, on Twitter yeah. and Facebook. And, and so we've sort of entered this, this reality that is actually quite, quite Complex and 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 doesn't always reflect the reality of of the country overall. And that story, I I would still argue, is an incredibly positive story. It is well, that- a country that has become much more welcoming and much more tolerant over time. But one side of this debate does have, I think, a vested interest in pushing a very different narrative which
0: that, is um, yeah that's a very good example of the kind of thing we're talking about you know because instead of <clears throat> instead of what you know as you say all the studies point in the same direction and tell us a very positive story about uh, race relations in this country and yet automatically when there were these horrible tweets and they were vile uh, but there weren't many in in the grand scheme of things if you take the number of people who watched the, the football match and the, and you know and most of them came from abroad anyway um, but to take that 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 you know a small number a handful of absolute ghastly people and and it's the step I don't understand is to go from there to well this must be reflective of the whole country this must be the, the reflective of everyone similarly uh, if I suffer discrimination uh, then I must assume that the whole country is systemically homophobic or whatever you know so it's that it's that leap from the 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 individual's experience which can be appalling. Uh, and then, to uh, extrapolate from that and make a judgment about the whole of society, where do you think that comes from?
1: Well, I think it comes from a number of trends that have been building over the last fifty years. I think one is the sort of turn towards uh, the emphasis on lived experience over uh, evidence and objective reality. I mean you know we, we could we could talk for hours about the roots of the of, of, of the underlying uh, uh, ideology, but I think one of the big shifts, you know, beginning in the 60s, was the, the sort of so-called therapeutic turn in Western societies that really began to focus on the individual need for recognition and, and the individual, uh, the individual's focus on on the importance of lived experience, and that really has, has I think, encouraged a society to focus overwhelmingly on subjective feelings mm. uh, over sometimes uh, the importance of of objective truth and, and uh, empirical evidence. And, you know, a lot of scholars recently have been talking about this. Francis Fukuyama has talked about it. Mark Lilla has talked about it. And I think that's been amplified by many movements on the left of politics who have sort of then embraced this, this view and have sort of latched into this identity politics to try and kind of reinforce that need for recognition among different minority groups. And so they no longer really give, they're no longer offering the unifying narratives that we used to have as a country. I mean, if you go back to the '50s, um, the '40s, '50s, we had these big unifying narratives around citizenship, around um, social patriotism, belie- you know, believing in in the country, believing in its institutions—not uncritically, but 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 nonetheless, we had a shared story about who we are. And I think you know since the '60s, from Different angles, we've had this worldview that is very focused on dismantling that that sense of unity and that that shared story. And we sort of collapsed into this much more fragmented narrative that is overwhelmingly focused on minority groups, that's overwhelmingly focused on. The culture of of victimhood is much less interested in objective evidence uh, and truth. Has really gone quite mainstream, as sort of filtered into not just you know universities, but media, public sector organisations, and so on. Um, and I think is now is now sort of um, you know really really focused on trying to satisfy this idea of emotional safety, in particular for younger generations, of Zoomers and millennials. So now it's really a culture of safetyism that's taken root, that you cannot be harmed by these views and ideas that you disagree with. And it's all, I think, really conflated. And it's brought us into this place where I think a lot of people feel that they can't say what they really think. A lot of academics and researchers in my world feel that they can't challenge some of these sacred values. Um, And uh, there's now a a vested interest in a way as you're incentivized to see yourself either as a victim or as an oppressor of those victims, in which case you you need to apologise for that, whether you need to apologise for your your white privilege or your your white guilt or your your whiteness, et cetera, et cetera. And so we've got this new status hierarchy in society, um, which is very simplistic, very binary. You're either good or bad, you're racist or anti-racist, you're an oppressor or you're a victim and that 's a very dark place, I think for a society to be especially a society that 's rapidly diversifying ethnically uh, culturally religious uh, religiously you know on all of these dimensions our society's becoming more complex uh, not 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 less complex, and then we 've sort of set up this bizarre structure which encourages people to see themselves on on one of two sides i mean that to me is a recipe for for a, a, a much more serious problem uh, going forward. And I'd like to see somebody either in, in politics or academia or the media or someone. I'd, like I'd like to see somebody start to get back to these unifying narratives that actually cut across the boundaries of different groups. Uh, and, and that is, I think, the primary political challenge of where
0: we are. And this this disparity between uh, what uh, I suppose reality and the kind of pseudo reality, uh, which is advanced by uh, activists and academics or activist academics, because they often are conflated. Um, This I think we have seen very clearly in the case of Kathleen Stock. And I want to come back to this because I just think this is a really, as you say, a very important test case. And, you know. I endlessly get into arguments with people about issues such as this such as uh, the representation of the LGB alliance you know whenever or JK Rowling whenever I say to people can you please quote something transphobic that JK Rowling has said or the LGB alliance has said and no one ever can it's just equivocation and and uh, you know un- ungenerous readings of what they've said and there's no evidence whatsoever and yet the narrative is so accepted to the point that people I know and respect and I consider to be very intelligent will say, oh, the LGB Alliance is a transphobic hate group. No evidence, they've just accepted that narrative. And similarly with Kathleen Stock, I think Kathleen Stock is a particularly egregious case because if you read her book, her Material Girls, if you, if, you, if you know anything about what she's said and done, she's actually one of the most sort of calm and uh, compassionate and, 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 and not a provocateur by any stretch of the imagination. It seems like an odd thing that she would be the one Uh, who is targeted to such an extent?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, I I agree with you on Kathleen. I think her arguments are very balanced. I think she's careful to always uh, talk from the point of view of evidence. uh, And she's certainly not a provocateur who's gone out of her way to create this current uh, uh, moral panic, if you like. Um, But but nonetheless, she has violated one of the sacred values in, in universities. And when you violate a sacred value and you violate... Uh, the progressive uh, worldview, then you are you are treated accordingly. You are what is shun- that
0: value? What is that value that she's you are, broken? You are,
1: sh- you are shunned on. Well, if you don't subscribe to the particular uh, view of gender identity and the relationship between sex and gender that is held by um, by you know a group within British society, I would argue certainly not a majority of British society, then. persona non grata, especially in an institution that tends to be 95%, 98% um, uh, leaning in one one particular way. Kathleen Stock, you know, what was interesting about the case for me, firstly, was um, this case could have gone completely differently. Uh, What was interesting about this case was the Vice-Chancellor stood up very early on. A vice chancellor that is leaving the university, by the way, I think is about to move on or I think is moving to a different institution, which, again, I think was an important piece of context. So, you know, he w- wouldn't have to stick around to deal with the consequences so much, mm. but nonetheless quickly came up, came, stood up and said, actually, I think Kathleen Stock has a right to say what she says in her books. Um, had that, that vice chancellor taken the opposite view and we know now that the trade union uh, branch at the university was was pretty openly critical of Kathleen Stock when in fact, you know, they should have defended an academic in that case, then things could have been very, very different for for Kathleen Stock. I think it's still an incredibly depressing situation to have an academic being essentially chased off campus, harassed and intimidated, and having been given advice by police, uh, as to how to handle her security in modern Britain, uh, I think is shameful, but but it's not the only case. I mean, we have the study at King's that suggests one quarter of university students are now scared to express what they really think um, uh, we have a study by UCU, <laughs> the, the Trade Union for Academics, um, which is sort of denied. You know, in the past that there is an issue. Their own survey shows that one in three academics feel that they cannot express their views because they are worried about the impact that will have on their uh, career progression. Um, and and for every Kathleen Stock, I can give you a Noah Carl, I can give you a Neil Thin, I can give you a Jordan Peterson, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And and the argument, you know, one of the silver linings in this case, and I hate to say that because I know that Kathleen stock has gone through hell. There is a silver lining in this case, which is that it is no longer credible to say that we do not have a problem in universities. That argument is no longer credible.
0: I was going to ask you about that because oh, I think idea that that was, that was
1: still being pushed by many of my colleagues on Twitter. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, who, who say this is all make believe, this is a, a this is all a, a, a sort of a, a plot that's been been being produced by right wing academics to discredit universities. And clearly now everybody can see it. Everybody can see it's out in the open. We have a serious problem, we need to deal with it and, and thankfully, the government actually has taken has taken uh, action to deal with it.
0: You wrote a piece uh, for Unheard that I, I read about about the way in which american culture the American culture wars are effectively being imported here, and this does raise a few problems, doesn't it because America has as you point out, a completely different uh history uh, and and you know it's, for instance, with the way that we import critical race theory into schools here is actually incoherent. Uh, given that we don't have the, the the history of segregation and slavery that they have. Um, that's not to say the British Empire wasn't complicit in slavery. What I mean is, you know, it's a very different uh, history that we have. Um, so why has that happened? And you said earlier that you think we're going down the American route and we're a few years behind America. Can you talk us through, develop that a little bit more for me?
1: Yeah, so we have uh, a number of uh, studies and reports over the last two or three years. Uh, one at University, uh, one at King's College London, uh, another by uh, Centre for Policy Studies. Uh, we have a lot of research in my discipline of political science, which is showing really since Brexit we've become a lot more polarised, and it, and it isn't just about Brexit. Brexit became an outlet for these deeper differences between what you might call sort of. Um, the sort of liberal left and and conservatives. I'm I'm being somewhat simplistic, but the the value divisions that underpin, remain and leave have now found their expression in other issues. How you feel about, about Black Lives Matter, how you feel about cancel culture and political correctness, how you feel about the monarchy, how you feel about Harry and Meghan even. All of these things have sort of become outlets of this deeper... Um, this deeper uh, divide within our society. And that's very similar to America. I mean, America is more extreme. Um, It's had, you know, people that have been much more aggressive at at tapping into that and mobilising it into politics. It's got a different media landscape. And as you say, it's got a very different history, uh, a long history uh, of populism as well in American politics. Um, But the UK, I think, you know, it does have the the foundations for US-style culture wars because, We have a political class that is not making room for alternative voices. About 90% of MPs come from the graduate class. Labour MPs are more likely now than Conservatives to, to, to have a university degree. They are culturally in a galaxy of their own. We've got a number of studies now that show that, especially on the left of British politics, the cultural attitudes that dominate the Labour Parliamentary Party, Labour activists and so forth are just very disconnected from wider society. Uh, We have a media that I would argue has not responded well to Brexit. It's not opened up to viewpoint diversity. I think one of the reasons why there's a merger space for platforms like uh, GB News is because of the failure of mainstream media to actually give voice to many of those views uh, and many of those uh, values in British society. Um, And we have, I would argue, a, a sort of cultural class within that that is very... Um, determined to stigmatise alternative values and voices as being somehow beyond the pale, as being somehow unacceptable, so we've got this sort of dogmatism that has bled into the British system as well, and that's really created this this, this sort of climate, which I think is is uh, is is very similar in some respects to the US, and and many of the arguments that that the sort of Progressive activists like to make; they like to draw these very simplistic comparisons to America. I think feed into that because they sort of present Britain as being a sort of mini-America that is also sort of blighted by you know sort of slavery and kind of segregation and you know all of this stuff that happened in in America, but but didn't happen in the in the United uh, 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 Kingdom. We have a, a completely different history, you know, where the UK certainly historically the empire was was involved. With some parts of that, but also took a leading role in the abolition of slavery. The migration flows into uh, the UK were completely different from the experience of migration and slavery in the United States. Um, the story of progress among minority communities has been radically different uh, from the United States, and all of these things are sort of you know, conveniently thrown out of the window. And so, actually, you know, we are we are similar to to America, and that I think reached its peak during 2020, I think, and the the pandemic and the lockdown, I think where you saw this sudden conflation of the United States with the United Kingdom and suddenly, you know, the the George Floyd protests, um, the Black Lives Matter debate essentially became sort of, it was, I guess, exported or imported into the UK with no real sense of nuance, no real kind of uh, uh, context. Uh, And and that's really unfortunate because uh, we now have a lot of people in schools and universities that I think are somehow equating the two. And we have a, I would argue, a much more positive story. And unless we get that nuance out, that complexity, that that positivity, um, then we will end up uh, replicating uh, the US. And I think that's really a depressing place to be. And we need people who are in influential, important institutions to remember that actually our story is very different and to point to that nuance and to say, actually, there is, a, there, is a, there is bad, but there is also good, and we need to discuss that in a balanced
0: way. Do you have uh, much optimism uh, that this can move in that direction? Do you think that people coming into uh, the academy or, or people, uh, younger people perhaps, might might have the, that courage? Because one of the questions that I get a lot is, you know, I, 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 people say that they feel the way that I do about certain issues, but they just don't have the courage to speak out. Um, I was at a, a conference recently where a young person was saying that she wanted to be more vocal about her views uh at university or no actually sorry she was employed somewhere and she was saying she was concerned that she wouldn't get the, any more promotion she wouldn't get anywhere in her career if she did so and that's a legitimate fear i i, I mean i actually I don't quite know what to say in those circumstances because my instinct is, well, we all need to be braver. Everyone needs to come out and say, stand up, take a stand against these things. But the truth is that if I advise someone to do that and then they, 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 their career suffers as a result, that would make me feel very, very bad. So is it just the case that there's going to have to be some sacrifices? Some people are going to have to, you know, I suppose, bear the brunt of it in order for progress to be made overall.
1: Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult. I think a lot of careers and a lot of lives are going to be ruined along the way. And we can already see that. I think in my world of higher education, I am waiting to see what impact the the new um, legislation around academic freedom has. My, my hypothesis, my hope, is that actually once you pass a bill, which the Conservative government have brought, which is essentially going to require universities not just to protect viewpoint diversity but promote it once once you have something like that in place my hope is that the bureaucracy will kick into gear we will have academic freedom lead tables we will have a culture that is much more receptive to the promotion of intellectual diversity and intellectual freedom. That's my hope. My, I know many close friends of mine would say I'm being naive and that actually that, that won't happen. If it doesn't happen, the only way forward, I would say reluctantly, is that there will have to be parallel structures of some description. There will have to be independent universities or there will have to be independent forums that will be set up specifically to promote the values of uh, the Enlightenment and are specifically set up, similar to Heterodox Academy in the US or the Hoover Institution uh, at Stanford, among others, that are specifically set up to actually Um, uh, encourage and promote uh, what you might call non-conformist views. Now, that that is not an ideal scenario. I do not want to advocate that scenario because I think we need to try and encourage existing institutions to open up. But unless the media are going to allow more working-class voices, non-graduate voices, unless universities are going to allow more gender-critical scholars, conservative scholars, Brexit scholars, etc., into their, their institutions and not be punished uh, have those scholars punished for doing so, we're not going to create that that environment that, that we need. I can't tell you, Andrew, how many emails I've had from junior academics uh, and many people who say you're finishing their master's and saying, actually, I really love a career in academia. I'd love to go into this, but I just don't think I could be myself. I just don't think I could say what I want to say or even research what I want to say without it having you know, negative consequences. And so they go into the private sector and those voices aren't essentially channeled out of these institutions, and they just you know they go into banking or whatever else, and they and that's it. And you just never hear from them or see them again. And I, I, I think we're going to have to, in the 2020s, I think this is a massive decade, a crunch decade for this debate. I think we're going to really have to watch carefully how these institutions respond to this this desperate need for viewpoint diversity. Is the BBC going to do a better job than it, than it has done historically? Are the universities going to? open up is local government and schools and etc. Are they going to go hundred miles an hour after the American model? Or they're going to say, hang on, wait, our experience is very different. We need to actually go down a different line and that's going to require leaders. It's going to require very brave people to stand up and make those arguments, like you're doing and, among others. Uh, and as you know, I mean, <laughs> there are huge consequences for that. It's not a pleasant place to be when you're on Twitter, uh, experiencing harassment and you know abuse and intimidation and so on on a daily basis i mean that's not an easy place to be but uh hopefully there'll be you know the, the few who do put their heads above the parapet hopefully that that opens the gates for moderates and many 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 others to stand up and say actually yeah i think this is crazy i think we need to stop this
0: well i think although you've painted quite a depressing picture you've also shown us uh, that there's the potential for a way out uh, and for which i'm very grateful thank you very much for joining me today matthew Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me on Free Speech Nation, the podcast with my guest, Matthew Goodwin. If you're so inclined, check out his many books, including National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. And if you enjoyed the episode, make sure you like, make sure you subscribe, do all the usual stuff, and then come back and join us next week where we'll have another brilliant guest. Farewell.